0: you mm-hmm.
1: All right, everybody, we're back, Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, episode 24. We're coming to you from uh, Brisbane Reptile Expo 2018. Um, It's finally here, the RepX Brisbane Reptile Expo show. I'm so excited that I can't even talk properly. (laughs) Um, So my co-host for today, uh, again, Miss Aaliyah Chanel, joining us uh, for some adventuring around the expo. How are you doing today?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Um psych to see some cool stuff, maybe buy a lot of cool stuff.
1: Yeah, there's some um, amazing stuff in there. Um, and we've already seen like some cool birds of prey, some really cool reptiles, uh so it was, like wedge tailed eagles already being carried around.
2: Yeah, there was also like a barking owl, which is always super cute, a big big fan with the kids.
1: Yeah, And um any um, any of the cool reptile morphs or something that you're interested in seeing while we're here?
2: Yeah, so I'm really keen to see the big birds. Of blue tongues, I walked past before. Lots of different morphs. Always a good time. Yeah.
1: So those will be uh, Joe Ball's uh, blue tongue lizards from uh, bluetonguelizard.com.au. Yeah. Look, there's some amazing morphs in there. Not just blue tongues, but carpet pythons, and not just carpet pythons as well. All kinds of lizard snakes. Um, we're really just going to have to get in there and see what there is, right?
2: Yeah, it's too much to talk about. We should go.
1: Alright guys, let's do it. We're going to go in there and see what we can find. We'll um, we'll be back with you once we've found something cool inside the Rep-X Brisbane Reptile Expo at the Royal International Convention Centre at Brisbane Showgrounds. Um, Alright guys, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, bye. Alright, we're here with Wayne Larks from Morellian Magic. How's your day going, mate? Yeah, good. Good. Really good. Nice and busy here, obviously. You've got some amazing displays here. Um, so these are mostly carpet pythons that you have up the top. Is that correct? Yep,
3: yep. Well, except for the blackhead and the olive.
1: Yeah, right. Obviously, and the olive is not so olive. very um, is he uh, leucistic or albino there? Albino. Yeah, and paradox. Al- oh, so he's a paradox as well. Yeah. Wow. So for you guys listening at home, um, a paradox albino. Albinos can't produce melanin, but occasionally uh, a tyrosine negative albino will actually somehow produce melanin. Is that correct?
3: Um. Yeah. I think so. I'll, well just the color that was on the on the olive you know so I don't know if it's a you know if it's a chimera it might just
4: yeah yeah I
1: don't know but well, yeah beautiful animals man beautiful 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 and um, what else have you got out here you got some of those uh, lovely moon glows out there at the side yeah, I see it, moon glows um,
3: ghost jags ghosts hypos, like super hypos, molesters, more super hypos, <laughs> Bam Bam, Parrot. Bam Bam. What's a what's a Bam Bam? Uh, bam Bam's just what I named the the, the very first jag,
1: right. um, Exanthic. Jag Exanthic. Yeah, she yeah, it's gorgeous. She is absolutely stunning. Look at that animal. That is, uh, and look, a lot of these are. Um, Coastal carpets, which are you know, you, you probably wouldn't even pick from the outside, especially when they're that small. They almost look like little spotteds and things, but then they yeah. grow up yeah. into these fantastic-looking carpets. Yeah, they sure do. Awesome, and a lot of work obviously going into these animals oh, a to lot, get them a lot, a lot. How long have you been breeding these things? Oh, I've been breeding
3: for nearly twenty years. Yeah, right. But the moon glows and stuff. It's, it's, geez, it's been 10, 10, 11 years. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a lot yeah. of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're really just starting to pump them out, you know. Like, and they're not even pumping them out, getting two or three a
1: year. So. Well, we still all worth it when you see the animals here. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. We might even have, have a bit of a look and uh, chat with you later as well, mate. Thank no you so much. Cheers. Cheers, mate. All right. Cheers, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.
2: We're here with Dr. Josh Linus from HerbVet, and we're just going to see how he's feeling about today. Um, so have you seen anything particularly that you're excited about today?
5: I actually haven't gotten around very much today. I've been um, here at the uh, stall all day. So we've got quite a lot of people coming through, which has been really, really good. Though. Yeah, a lot, lot of good interest.
2: So is there any particular questions that most people have been asking?
5: No, very varied. Um, everything from anteresia to turtles to uh, trying to figure out uh, um, what the best place, to, uh, best thing to do for the reptiles are.
2: And is there anything in particular that you'd want most people to know about?
5: Um, I want them to know that uh, going to the vet is not scary. Um, It doesn't have to be scary or expensive. It is just one of those things that uh, it's important for us to know what's going on. If we don't see them, uh, by the time a reptile gets sick, they're very sick and I'm trying to avoid that. So I want to make sure that they can come in and, and see us as easily as possible.
2: Yeah, so even just for like getting a check up every now and then, so...
5: I think it's a good idea um, as long as it's not risky for the animal. Uh, we want to minimize the stress for them. Uh, so I do think that coming in for a routine check, especially early on, is incredibly important. And then we could decide if it's needed on a yearly basis or a six-monthly basis. A turtle who's, you know, 20 years old, is doing well, I probably don't need to see as much as a bearded dragon who is three months old who already has some problems.
2: Okay, cool. Okay, great. Well, hopefully you get to have a walk around soon, there's some pretty cool stuff to see yes, and um, thanks for having a quick chat with us.
5: No thank you.
1: All right, guys, we're back here with Reptile Rehab Queensland. I'm here with Annette Bird. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Awesome. And you guys are super busy here, obviously. Um, well, taking donations and uh, trying to get some people to sign up as well to become yep. wildlife
6: carers? Yes, absolutely. Right.
1: And you've uh, obviously, you know, you guys do a great job teaching people how to, you know, help care for wildlife, and you're also a, like an overall organisation and a network for other carers
7: as yeah.
6: well? we are. We have on our Facebook page, uh, we have our full education program. So you can just go and have a look and book into the courses. So we cover pretty well every spe- every reptile species, how to care for them, how to rescue them. Uh, we've got advanced beginner courses, everything.
1: Awesome. That's fantastic. How often do uh, you guys run the courses? Uh,
6: about two a month, all year.
1: All year. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that, you guys <laughs> must keep pretty busy. Yeah, we do. Wonderful. And uh, what do you guys have here uh, on display I at the moment?
6: Uh, we have a blue-faced common tree snake, a frill neck lizard, a bearded dragon and a water dr- dragon over the other side there.
1: Right, so a couple of locals in the frill neck, obviously, yes. not so much.
6: No, not so much the local. Awesome. Um, they're more, they don't do that well around people, so you don't see those like you used to. The bearded dragon um, is actually an eastern, not a central, so that's our local one. Okay. Um, and they're actually in trouble in the wild as well. Oh wow, okay. So they're actually on the decline. When we look at our numbers coming into care, um, there's a lot more more serious injuries, less of them surviving, but also less of them coming in because there's less of them around.
1: Oh, that's a, that's a massive shame to hear, actually. I, I, I love those, you know, seeing them around since I was a kid all the time.
6: Yeah, water dragons, still not a problem, but the bearded dragon is in trouble.
1: Right, and they do seem to need a bit more of a woodland habitat, right?
6: Uh, yes, yeah, they probably do. They don't do as well around people, whereas water dragons are pretty opportunistic, so throw anything down they'll eat it whereas a beardie won't yeah. and the beardies will also just sit there instead of run Right. so dogs will get them, cars will get them because they don't
1: move so. yeah they do the I'm a stick defence
6: yep. and they're the same colour as the road so
1: yeah, if people right.
6: aren't looking for them they're not going to see them
1: yeah, okay. Wow, that's a that's a shame to hear. Well at least you guys are here doing everything that you can. Obviously you're taking quite a few into rehab at the moment.
6: Oh yeah, well it's slowing down now. Well yeah, we, now
1: that it's getting cooler.
6: But we have had a very busy year as well as eggs. Yeah. We've had probably close to three hundred eggs that the group have hatched this year as well.
1: Wow, that's incredible. All
6: species, so including twenty-two eastern
1: brown snakes. Fantastic, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, that's very cool, guys. If you want to check them out, it's reptilerehabqueensland.org. Uh, you can check them out online and, uh, I believe, it on Facebook as well for yep. all those uh, courses. And uh, when are you guys running the next one?
6: Uh, in about two weeks. Oh, uh, busy. non-venomous snake S- Sorry, what was that? Non-venomous snakes.
1: Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, a little bit more everybody can be involved yep. in that.
6: Yep. And we do venomous snakes as well, but that's a totally different day.
1: Yeah, no worries. All right, we better get get, uh, moving and see what else we can find. Thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll find you on the uh, podcast stage a little bit later. Yep,
6: no worries. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Annette. Cheers. All right, guys, we'll see you soon. Talk soon. Bye. Hey, guys, I'm here with Joe Ball. He's the go-to
2: guy for all things Blue Tongue.
8: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. And you?
2: Yeah, I'm having a great time, especially at this stand. I've got
8: a little Kimberley at home, so That's good. Good to have a fellow Blue Tongue lover. Yeah.
2: Um, so what can you tell us in like Lehman's terms about what the what different
8: morphs you have to do? Well the colour morphs are something that are part of I suppose a 10 to 12 year journey that's been going on in blue tongues. not just with me but with a, a few breeders around Australia which I suppose kicked off when the first albino eastern blue tongue was found and then since then there's been hyper melanistic black blue tongues and basically every other colour morph that you can think of has popped up. And, we've been sort of pairing these animals together making combinations across the the different types so albino hypermelanistics and this that and the other and now we've got this vast array that you can see over here of different color models so it really has evolved over those 10 years into a fruit salad of blue tongues if you like yeah
2: um so you mentioned a few of the names do some of the other ones that aren't just the very light black ones
8: yeah, so we've got the T plus albinos. We've got xanthic, which is the opposite to albino, which pulls out the oranges and the yellows. Whereas your albino pulls out your black. Your T plus that I just discussed has some nice sort of rainbow effect colours with um, light pastel lilacs and things like that. So, so yeah, there's 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 quite a few now, not not just not just the one or two. So yeah. And do you feel like there's a pretty high
2: demand? People wanting to get.
8: Yeah, that's it. These animals are born in November, December, basically, and by sort of February, March, they're all sold, and now everybody's lining up wanting these morphs column- blue tongues and we've got a six seven or eight month wait until we can get them on the table again so to answer your question yeah I th- actually think they are the flavor of the month in the reptile world and everybody wants it, So well
2: I think their flavors going to stick around for a while I, exciting.
8: I think so I mean with them being an entry-level reptile i.e. Any, a, a kid can keep them from the age well, whatever age you like really and it doesn't pose any sort of there's no barriers there, like the maybe with snakes. There's no perception barriers and there's no actual yeah. barriers. So the blue tongue, the good old Aussie blue tongue, really is a pet for all. Well, I've
2: had mine for 10 years and he's been pretty
8: easy going and haven't had to do a Yeah, that's it. And most of them are pretty good like that. So, yeah. OK, cool. Well, thanks for
2: taking the time to chat to us. I'm sure we'll see you around the festival
8: a bit later. Absolutely. Have a great day, guys. Thanks. Cheers.
1: All right, we're here with Tony Harrison from Reptile Relocation and Awareness. How you doing, mate? Good, mate, and yourself?
4: Yeah, very well, very busy, obviously, running around, yeah. so much awesome stuff to see. Yeah, sweet, there's a lot to see here. Uh, this setup's quite good and very professionally done with all the signage and whatnot. I yeah. think Scott's gone above and beyond, you know? Yeah,
1: they've tried really hard. Obviously, RepX put on a good show here, and uh, and uh, look, like, there's a huge crowd here. You're, you're here doing uh, Venomous Snake demos,
4: yeah, and... I'll, uh, I'll stop. I personally doing the top 10 most venomous snake show plus my other half's doing the um, all the going as the monitors yeah. as a specialty so yeah so
1: that's brooke smith over there yeah, yeah. handling the monitors and uh giving everybody a check out yep yeah wonderful
4: so you got the top 10 most venomous right here and uh you're bringing them out for everybody to see yeah two at uh, 12 and two o'clock we're doing the, the last two shows uh, yeah. we've already done one but um yeah in between apparently there's going to be some photos with we've got albino python uh There'll be olives and a croc and a few other bits and pieces for photos, but yeah.
1: Yeah, well, so people can uh, take some photos here as well.
4: Yep, exactly. Very cool, man. And um, so you've
1: uh, obviously been in reptile handling and snake removal for for quite some time as well. How
4: long have you been in in the relocation business? I got my permit on the 30th of September 1994, but I did it for a couple of years prior to that, not knowing that I needed to have a permit. Got my backside (laughs) kicked and now I'm kosher. (laughs) Wow.
1: So I would have been, uh, I think, six or seven at the time. and uh yeah only just now kind of uh last few years getting into it so man um you must have had some uh, amazing experiences doing this so far
4: yeah mate, I, I could say i'd write a book about it but i have there's so many scary funny illegal immoral s- situations i've been put into you know <laughs> oh look it's all part of the business isn't it that's it dealing with the public
1: no worries and uh what's the most uh what's the uh I guess most uh, fun thing here for you to handle of your uh, of your events. What's the one that's a little bit of a firecracker?
4: Oh, look, we've just recently purchased ourselves a new collets black snake, and collets are normally pussycats, but these thing's are a handful plus some.
1: Really? Because Yeah, collet, yeah uh, from what I hear, collets can be uh, yep, pussycats.
4: Yeah, normally apples push catch, cats, but this thing just wants to tear your face off. <laughs> and you're going to be bringing him out for everybody to see, or? yeah? Yeah, I've already used him once, and he's to- he's already tried to tear my face off publicly. Yeah. So yeah. so he's uh, behaving how
1: you would want for uh, for a venomous snake uh, in a, in a demo sense.
4: He acts like your average venomous snake should.
1: <laughs> Wonderful, mate. Well, look, I can't wait to see it. Hopefully, we can make it around at one or two. Thanks so much for talking to us, mate. And hopefully, we'll swing around again sometime later. Go? Take it easy. Uh, man, Thanks very much. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to go see what else we can find. Cheers. See you soon. Alright guys, we're here with the Australian School of Herpetology, I've got Christina Zdenek
7: and Chris Hay here. How are you guys doing?
9: Wonderful, thanks.
1: Awesome. awesome. And uh, what are you guys here, uh, here doing? Just uh, promoting some of your educational stuff, I understand?
0: Absolutely, we're here promoting our advanced uh, venomous snake handling course, which we've uh, put together over the last sort of two years. And uh, we do offer uh, very comprehensive training in venomous snake handling, yep. get people cert- certified so that they're out there doing things correctly.
1: Right, so, um, yeah, we've seen uh, a few pictures of uh, your uh, school of herpetology down there towards the Gold Coast and the uh, amazing
0: facility that you guys have there. How long have you guys been running? Uh, Reptile Kingdom Australia, which is a reptile park, has been operating for about four years now. And the Australian School of Herpetology was just launched last year.
1: Yeah, wow, okay, and already a lot of interest, I understand.
0: Absolutely, yeah, there's a huge demand for it, particularly with uh, people seeking dami- damage mitigation uh, qualifications yep. and those wishing to enter a, zoo, a zoo-type zoo industry as and well.
9: even kids, were finding out they want to take a course, and we're like, oh, you have to be 18, but hey, we can design another course yep. that's suited for them, so we're looking into that as well.
1: Wow, that's really cool. So you guys are really trying to design reptile courses for not just adults but basically anybody who wants to get into it?
10: Definitely, yeah, absolutely, satisfy that need. It's uh, certainly a big one now
9: yeah we we'll cool. even travel as well yep. so we can ship the snakes so for mining companies or yeah uh, right
1: so you're not you're not just uh yeah sedentary you're a little bit mobile as well
0: absolutely mm-hmm. yes yeah. definitely
10: yeah
1: and christina you're um obviously uh we know you from your work on death adders mostly um and yeah. uh but you've also got these lovely palm cockatoo pictures here for those of you guys who were uh, uh paying attention <laughs> the last couple of weeks uh there was uh, last couple of months there was yeah. some fantastic work that came out on uh these uh, fantastic palm cockatoos and how they drum, is that correct?
9: Absolutely, they are drumming birds.
1: That is the coolest thing ever. And uh, I understand that the males actually have their own individual rhythms and patterns some of the time, a little bit localized geographically?
9: Yeah, so it's just this one population that we know up in Cape York Peninsula within Australia um, that drum regularly and we did discover through four years' worth of field work. Um, It's a rare behavior from an elusive bird, go figure, it's a difficult thing to try to work out, but we did finally come out with a paper last year, and we showed that the males do have individualistic drum beats, and they stick to that beat when they do that display, and that is consistent within each individual to the exclusion of others.
1: That's super cool. So they have their own little drums and rhythms to uh, attract the ladies.
9: Yeah, and they also make the tool to do it.
1: Wow, yeah, yeah. they, they forge their own tools and maybe even uh, modify some sticks and, and that kind of stuff, is that correct?
9: Yeah, and they might even use a seed pod, so they have, yeah. Oh, use shakers. Tools. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very oh, cool,
1: cool. <laughs> that's fantastic. Alright, well look guys, uh, we might catch up with you guys a little bit later on the podcast table. We're going to keep going see what else we can find. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. No worries, thanks. Awesome, no worries, thank you. Cheers guys, you have a good day. You Bye. You too. And welcome back everybody to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. This is uh, episode 24. I'm very excited finally coming to you guys from the Repex Brisbane Reptile Expo. There's a uh, over 1,700 metres squared of amazing invertebrates, birds of prey, lizards, turtles, pythons, venomous snakes, and much, much more for you guys to come and experience. You can also check them out at repex.com.au or at Repex Australia on Facebook. Um, and with me, of course, I've got my co-host, Aaliyah Chanel. How are you doing?
2: I'm great. I've seen a lot of cool stuff today, so having a good time.
1: Yeah, a lot of cool morphs as we've been seeing and wandering around. And uh, we have our good friend Kane Durant from Wild Exhibits and uh, Turtle Rescues New South Wales. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Kane, how are you doing, mate? Very good. Happy to be here. Excellent. And you guys have been busy down at the stand selling a few photos and things like that?
10: Yeah, yeah. We're busy over at the Wild Stand. We're selling some Sydney funnel webs, which have been a real hit up here in Brisbane. Yeah. Wow, you guys have Sydney funnel webs? Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, um, I, I didn't make it down there to check them
1: out. I'm going to have to uh, come and have a look. Uh, do, so you keep them down uh, down in New South Wales as well, do you?
10: Yeah, we do, yeah. So we um, actually provide a few for, for Venom Works, and we also sell them as pets to private hobbyists yeah, over the age of 18, of course. Yeah, wow, and that's becoming more and more common, people getting into uh, arachnids as well? Yeah, for sure, yeah. Invertebrates has really taken off, especially in this last 12 months. So, yeah, we've really gotten into that side. And you guys do a lot of, uh, I guess, aquarium work. So you guys are working with, uh, I see, you, like you, you, often pictures of you
1: with Saratoga, basically.
10: Yeah, Saratoga. Yeah, Jardini. They're my favourite fish. The Saratoga. So I try and um, steer all my customers towards keeping those. Oh man, they're awesome! Like super fast, super predatory, sleek little rain. Uh, well, freshwater fish. Anyway, very, very cool. Yeah, yeah, I
1: love them. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, so I guess we're really here to talk about, I mean, there's all these amazing uh, you know, displays around, there's enclosures, there's, uh, you know, a lot of people here are reptile keepers, but for, for the people listening in, uh, uh, at home, um, it's a bit of a strange thing to go out and uh, you know, set up a home for what might be sometimes a, a very deadly uh, reptile, or even something that's just bizarre and weird. So I guess uh, let's just start with why, why do you think uh, people keep reptiles and, uh, and uh, exotic wildlife?
10: Uh, Well, for me, it started when I was about four or five years old. I was obsessed with dinosaurs and reptiles, you know, living today were the next best thing. So, yeah, that's what I really got focused on. Um, But keeping natives as pets uh, is really important for a whole range of reasons, you know, conservation, um, education and and so forth. And just that that connection to nature
1: as well, which I think is missing from a lot of people's lives, right?
10: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's amazing how many Australians uh, just have no idea what animals might occur in their own backyard. Yeah, so even that local knowledge is um, you know, pretty much lacking in a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, city
1: fellas, city folk, city dwellers.
10: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, especially, I guess, city people. But um, I think it's not, not so much just one particular demographic, but I think it's just... Um, just the whole sort of society as a whole, just really ignorant and um, oblivious to the natural world because we're so caught up on our phones, our computers, our own work, our day-to-day work, and we're just not focused on the natural world. And I really think that's, we need a shift in that attitude, yeah.
1: So a little bit more awareness of native wildlife would uh, not be a bad thing?
10: Yeah, for sure, yeah. Awareness of native wildlife and the habitats in which they exist and uh, maybe... You know, if if everyone could have a love for that natural world, uh, we could preserve it, you know.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. And look, a a lot of that is um, what a lot of these demonstrators are out here doing. They're trying to inspire the next generation, get people involved in conservation and keeping reptiles and that kind of stuff. Um, Aaliyah, you were were a demonstrator for a while. You were working with uh, Geckos Wildlife, is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. I uh, worked with Geckos Wildlife on and off for about six years. Um, So, yeah, we found that... I found that personally to be, like, a really um, encouraging experience. A lot of children will come up, a lot of, like, families will come up, and you can give them, like, that one-on-one education about, like, the importance of, yeah, keeping wildlife and um, what they can do, what's around their area, what to expect.
1: Is that that kind of what you find as
10: well to be important is to uh, kind of connect to people when they're young? Yeah, for sure, yeah. If you can get it into them while they're young, uh, they're probably going to carry it through for the rest of their life like I have and probably like you guys have, you know. Exactly. Who's,
1: who's more enthusiastic about this stuff than kids, right?
10: Yeah, exactly, yeah. I know uh, we've got three children of our own and, um, and yeah, no, no one beats their enthusiasm.
1: <laughs> and uh, obviously there's a lot of very enthusiastic kids running around looking at all these morphs, it's pretty much the same way you were.
2: Yeah, pretty much that was me when I was a little kid going around picking up lizards in the garden, which you shouldn't do, so don't do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, then it's pretty much, yeah, even adults in this kind of environment kind of turn into kids in a candy store just going around checking out all the cool colours and morphs. Is there anything in particular that you've seen today that you were just blown away by?
10: Yeah, uh, well, Joe Ball's um, blue tongue's always blow me away, as as does Morelia Magic's morphs over there, you know, all their white pythons and that, yeah. Those
1: moon glows and stuff from uh, Deb Larks and uh, Wayne Larks down there at Morelia Magic, yeah, fantastic.
10: Yeah, perfect. Yeah.
1: yeah, incredible animals. And Aaliyah, some uh, something that you're keen to see still while we're here. Is there anything that you haven't checked out yet?
2: Um, I guess i haven't having a good look at the bird displays that we actually have here, which was a bit of a surprise. I wasn't expecting that one, but they've um, got some pretty cute stuff. Some stuff I'd like to learn a little bit more about.
1: I think uh, I think he's over there feeding a falcon as we speak.
2: Yeah, I think he is doing a doing a little show, putting on some <laughs> tricks, which I didn't do.
1: What is that? A little brown falcon.
2: Um, yeah, I think that's what it is. I can't be sure, but it, that's what it looks like it is from here.
1: Wonderful. So much stuff here to see today, guys. Um, absolutely awesome. Um, now, um, I guess, uh, I would, what's it like, uh, I, I want to ask you, uh, especially first, Aaliyah, what's it like exhibiting native wildlife and being out there and like handling them and, uh, you know, with, the, with the public? Is that very different from keeping them at home?
2: Yeah, it is very different. So they definitely, the animals that you exhibit to the public have a very specific temperament that you need them to have. They need to be very calm, very comfortable with like lots of people being around, um, loud noises, sometimes kids coming up and patting them. So every so often you'll have, you'll let the kids pat the blue tongues and a few other things because it gives them that, that tangible like one-on-one interaction that they they get really passionate about um so you definitely need to be ready for a few weird and wonderful questions um you need to be ready for the people that are going to tell you the great jokes like oh that's a nice looking handbag or like that's a nice looking boat and you just like wonder I'm like do you think I'm the demographic for that joke like um so yeah you definitely got to have your wits about you um and you got to be ready for a few fun facts to come out.
1: Yeah, right. And uh, you guys at Wild, you don't do a whole lot of demo, more educational stuff, is that right?
10: Yeah, that's right. So we, we actually run courses and teach uh, kids and adults alike, um, especially newcomers to the hobby, how to correctly handle and care for their for their animals.
1: Yeah, right. So that no, doesn't include, obviously, just the funnel webs and the Saratoga, but uh, working with a lot of reptiles as well?
10: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we cover anything from a knobtail gecko right up to a black-headed python or an olive python, yeah.
1: Wow, very cool. Um, And uh, can you tell us a little bit about Turtle Rescues New South Wales? There's always uh, some amazing stuff coming up on Facebook of you guys rescuing turtles out there um, from a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, urban development at this stage, uh, occupying a a lot of those dams and
10: waterways that are being cleared. Yeah, so old farmland in rural Sydney, um, obviously Sydney was originally a farming town. And uh, a lot of those old farmlands are now being bought up by developers, and the rural dams that were built, like, 100-plus years ago to water agriculture are are now being filled in so they can build houses and shops and whatever else on those. And uh, in those dams actually live eastern long neck turtles. And uh, in a dam just two weeks ago, we actually removed 224 eastern long neck turtles. From a single dam? Yeah, from one single dam, though, uh, it was like the last dam in that area, so they'd actually dewatered about six dams around it, and we assumed that all the turtles had moved into that last refuge. And uh, yeah, so we got 224 turtles out, relocated them, we we spread them out in groups of about 50 um, into different waterways and rivers that are more permanent, you know. And um, yeah, it sort of gave them a, gave them another chance at life, you know.
1: Wow, that's an incredible job. So, uh, did you guys were you there for the dewatering of the other dams around that main one, or was it just that one that had the uh, the Massive number in it that you guys got to be there for.
10: That's actually the first one in that council district that we've uh, gotten into. You know, so we've we've been fighting uh, for that council to be stricter on the developers in the area. Um, but it was only that uh, this this particular development they're building a school, and there were a few concerned residents in the area that had found long neck turtles sort of run over on the road, and that's how we get a lot of our a lot of our jobs and a lot of our tip-offs people find dead turtles on the road and uh that have sort of left left a dewatered dam and then we go and investigate and find yes this dam has been dewatered there's no spot of catcher on site we need to get in get the turtles out whether um you know during hours of being paid during hours of volunteer or sort of sneaking in there on the weekend and just getting the animals out because they they're not sort of agreeing to um us doing it yeah Wow, that's an incredibly tough job. Um,
1: must be very challenging to uh, rescue 240 turtles from a dewatered dam and uh, they, they don't take their time dewatering those things, do they?
10: No, no. So, see, some dams, they, they breach the wall. They use an excavator to actually breach the wall where they, they dig the wall of the dam out and then the water just sort of floods out um, into the paddock or wherever they're releasing it to. Um Those ones are a lot faster because the water's rushing out. Um, So they're the good ones where we can sort of be on site for that process and we can get in that dam the next day. But the dam's where they're using small pumps to slowly dewater it. um, While that's probably better for the turtles um, in terms of stress and things like that, it doesn't really help us because it's over a six-week period and uh, the animals have plenty of time to sort of migrate, and it's during those migrations on busy roads that, w- that we see so many deaths, you know, so that's a real shame. Right, so you'd almost rather that uh, little bit faster traumatic event, but that lets you actually
1: catch and relocate a larger number of animals?
10: Yeah, that's right, yeah. So if, if they've dewatered a dam and then left it for sort of three, four weeks, um, sort of just dwindling in the balance, um, a lot of animals have left there and, and then we, that's when we see sort of 12 or 13 sort of dead in one day on, on, on adjacent roads, you know. But, but if they can just get all the water out all at once, um, then we can really concentrate, get in the mud and get all the turtles out, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Wow. Dude, top stuff. That's
1: uh, That sounds like a very challenging job. Um, guys, you can check them out at Turtle Rescues New South Wales on Facebook and uh, Wild on Instagram. Where else can people find uh, Turtle Rescues? Uh, I guess you can just Google them and find you guys, hey?
10: Yeah, that's right. If you Google Turtle Rescues New South Wales, you'll see a whole range of newspaper articles, you know, Facebook, Instagram posts, all sorts of things, and, and you can follow us. Um, obviously, we reply to all the messages, a lot of people messaging us every day about turtles they found in their area, especially interstate people, asking, what they can do for their locals because this is a nationwide problem. Um, development obviously, Australia is a growing nation and uh, they're draining dams right around the country. Yeah, not just in Sydney. No, that's right, not just in Sydney at all. So we're actually getting a lot of interstate people contacting us. Hey, is there a turtle rescues, you know, Victoria? Is there a turtle rescues Queensland? So, yeah.
1: Very cool, man. Great stuff. Thanks so much for coming on, mate. I think we're going to have to. Uh See who else is uh, lined up. We've got a very busy schedule with guests. But thanks again, Kane Durant from Wild and Turtle Rescues New South Wales. It's been great talking to you, mate. Hope to talk to you again soon.
10: Yeah, thanks heaps, Yanni. I know we tried to do this last year when I was up, but it, it didn't quite work out, so it's been great to be on the show. Thank you. No worries, mate. And look, if you are up around Brisbane any t- uh, time, we'd love to have you for a proper
1: sit-down podcast at some stage and talk turtles properly. Yeah, cheers. Have a good one. Thanks. No worries, mate. All right, guys, we'll be back soon with uh, our next guest. Cheers. All right, guys, we're back with more wildlife cake and cocktails from RepX Brisbane Reptile Expo. Um, man, I'm having a great time out here. There's, like, seriously so much cool stuff. There was somebody with a barn owl just walking around. Did you
2: guys see that? that was amazing. Yeah, that was super cool. Very cute.
1: Very, very cool. Guys, we've got Annette Bird here from Reptile Rehab Queensland. Annette, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Awesome. And are you guys having a busy day over there? Um, we have been very busy. Yeah, cool. And um, mostly, you guys are uh, pretty much working with volunteers, isn't it?
6: It is a totally volunteer-run organisation, so all the costs are borne by our volunteers.
1: Yeah. Yep, yep. And um, what, you guys are here uh, getting a few more volunteers on board? Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> hope. And you have having some people sign up to become uh, reptile carers?
6: so. Yeah, yeah we yeah. need carers yeah, all cool. the time.
1: Yeah, right. Needle- so you guys are always pretty much in a shortage of uh, reptile carers? Yeah,
6: the volume of animals that we get through every season just gets bigger and bigger.
11: Yeah, right.
6: Um, and w- our skills are getting better, so we're getting more challenging things come through. So, yeah, always looking for carers. So you just need yeah, more right. people? Yeah. Hmm.
1: Sorry. I might not interrupt. Hang on. <laughs> so, yeah, well, what, you guys uh, what, are, what, you're taking some donations as well down there? I uh, hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, and uh, also, I saw some, uh, you had a blue phase uh, tree snake out there, which is one of the coolest yeah, snakes he around was beautiful. here,
6: Yeah, he's captive cat friend, though, so he's not uh, yeah. a wild one, but no. you wouldn't see too many blue ones like him in the wild. No, no I haven't not. seen he's many. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it's
1: absolutely stunning. Um, and uh, a few rehab animals up there as well at the moment. Do you? No, or? they're
6: all captive animals all up captive. there today. Yeah, okay. Oh well, uh, of Because ethically, as yeah. a group, we won't bring um, rehabilitating animals. It's too stressful for them. Yeah, mm. it
1: makes total sense that you want to minimise the amount yeah. of exposure and My stress. My lot
6: are used to it. So they
1: yeah. Just
6: put
2: uh, yeah. 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 All
1: right. Well, look. Um, I guess uh, you know. As far as uh, keeping reptiles, uh, is there there any advice that you have for for new keepers who are here walking around and getting interested?
6: Absolutely. Whatever species you're going to get, make sure that you've got species-specific set up for them. Right. So if you're getting a day-basking dragon, for example, you need to have a day-basking area, you need to have a thermal gradient in that environment because, you know, the um, hot temperatures at, as a constant are actually harmful to the lizard. They've got to be a- whatever the reptile, they've got to be able to move to cool themselves down um, and basically um, manage their, their preferred body temperature for whatever species they are. Right. So lighting and heating, absolutely critical as well. Yeah. Um, so if you're getting a day-basking lizard, you have to have the maximum UVB output. If you're going to have a heat source in there, um, you need a thermostat to control that heat source. Um, and enrichment as well. So it's important not to just stuff them in a box right. and expect they're going to flourish. So they need things to do because in the wild they do things too.
1: Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, different species with different requirements. Yep. Um, it's going to be always the key, not just for housing, but uh, nutrition. And, uh, and And as, as well for enrichment. I imagine there's uh, animals that will require more enrichment than others. Is yep, that correct?
6: Yep, chasing their own food. And, I, and I'm and i not talking about live feeding snakes. I'm talking about insects for, yeah.
1: for lizards. For dragons and stuff. Yes. So they're not always being tongue-fed and yes. just sitting there on exactly. the
6: log. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So let them hunt for their food.
1: Right. And, um, and have some of those natural behaviours.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And then make sure that you're providing them with all the nutrients they need. So calcium dust their live foods before they go in. Right. Um,
1: do, now, do you recommend uh, you know the supplementation on every round of live feeding? Or? I
6: do. Yeah? But... You know, some people don't, but yeah. I do with all of mine.
1: I guess it really depends on uh, their UV exposure as well if they're getting enough.
6: Well, mine go outside so <laughs> during the <laughs> day, so they get there? the maximum. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Uh, they're only
6: really inside full-time when it's really cold.
1: Yeah, okay. Um,
6: and I guess that's another important point. If you're going to have reptiles, m- an outside setup is a good idea in when the weather's optimum. Yeah, right. Um, because that way they can do their normal behaviours, um, in a bigger outdoor enclosure and it's enrichment. You're taking them out of their box yeah, right. and giving them, you know, some more
1: space. Yeah, can't, can't hurt. Yeah. It definitely let them stretch their legs a little bit more, run around. Yeah, and Yeah, yeah. Uh, Aliyah, do you keep beardies, bearded dragons as well or...? Um.
2: I used to have a couple of beer dragons. I sold them on to one's working at geckos now. She's got to work for her food. Oh, right. uh, and Became one professional. I sold to a seven-year-old girl whose mum was an ecologist. So I feel like that'll be a good home. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, that one's yeah, getting taken
2: care of. I definitely, of. I always, yeah my crickets and such before I put them in, make sure they had to work for their food a little bit. Yeah, right. Have a little run around. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So yeah,
2: I have a blue tongue at home, so yeah, he gets a lot of fresh greens and fruit and a bit does of Does eat greens? He's blue Sometimes. His. If I sneak them into other stuff. Yeah. Um, but he does like an egg every now and then.
1: Yeah, cool. All right. Well, look, uh, and it is very important, obviously, with blue tongues and things that are a bit more general, is to have a bit of a very, well, at least varied nutrition in their diet. I believe. Yeah.
6: I always offer a different fruit and vegetable each day. Oh, looks like your
1: mic's live! Yay! (laughs) We all get our own. You've got to be a
6: little bit careful with your nutrition as well. So if you're feeding um, uh, food sources that are too high in certain elements, like uh, spinach is high in oxalates. You can right. start to get some problems, so you need to vary the fruit and vegetables each day as well.
1: Yeah, right. Okay, and uh, look, uh, even simple things like feeding too many uh, mealworms or wax worms will uh, very quickly lead to impaction and mm. and then obesity. them obesity obesity not yep. being able to pass waste and Absolutely. then just leading to the, yeah yeah you have
2: to be really careful and
6: getting them used to being tongue fed another big no no. Mm. I mean, it's easy, but it's not you don't want them to get in the habit of it yeah, exactly am right. not eating because I have to chase
2: it yeah <laughs> getting a little bit lazy
1: end up with a lazy lizard
2: yes. yeah yeah I find it's easier so I just kind of make sure I buy things for myself that I'm eventually going to be able to feed them as well so then I can change it up for them yep yeah. Good
1: idea. Yeah, that's the way. Now, look, um, over at um, the reptile rehab stuff, um, is there any particular injuries that you're seeing a lot of? I know, like, dog and uh, cat attacks and vehicle and strikes are going to be fairly regular. Yeah,
6: they're the top three. Yeah. So the top four, they're all human-related. So dogs, cats, and cars, always the top three. Not yeah. a surprise. Yep. Yeah. Habitat loss probably comes in at a close four. Mm. Um, we're, you know, facing dwindling, you know, bushland population so the issue there is where do we put the animals that we're rehabilitating mm. Right. Uh, more of them are pushed onto roads and areas absolutely. where there are cats and dogs and I had an exam- a prime example earlier um, earlier on in the season where we had a new estate out where I am so all the bearded dragons had obviously bromated mm. during the, se- the time they were building all of these houses so summer comes the lizards all come out suddenly they're in backyards and tangling with dogs and cats and I had something like six bearded dragons within a 50 meter you know long um, distance all injured none of them survived oh man just absolutely dreadful so then you know had those have gone on to be rehabilitated where do we release them? we can't put them back in a backyard with a dog
1: yeah Mm, well they're going to get injured again yeah
6: absolutely so that's one of the big things that we face is where do we put these animals that we're rehabilitating the law says we've got to put them back where we collected them from
1: but if there's risks and threats there for the animal
6: absolutely so right. we find the nearest suitable habitat
1: yeah right well i mean uh near a suitable habitat which is uh i guess slowly dwindling mm getting harder and harder to find in certain Absolutely. parts of uh, parts of Queensland.
6: And I guess that's why um, networking with other groups and other uh, community events is helpful as well because we quite often have people come up to the table that might have a 50-acre property um, that are happy for us to release animals that they've already got on their property. Yeah, so that would be know such a good connection. To... Absolutely.
1: Yeah, awesome. Um, and uh, you guys also do a lot of education there as well down at um, uh, Reptile Rehab Queensland. Uh, yep. You guys run courses. Uh, we have. I've actually been to one. That was fantastic. Yeah,
6: we've got a pretty extensive education program, so all species-specific. Um, so we, we do lizard days, non-venomous snake. We also do venomous snakes. Um, so we do rescue Uh, We do advanced
1: care, beginner care, pretty well everything. Yeah, um, the uh, reptile uh, rescue and care courses uh, were uh, very interesting. Mm. Uh, Yeah, there's obviously a lot to learn. but
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I think I still have things to learn. I definitely want to pop down for a sneak one soon, I think. And it's vastly different to keeping a captive bred reptile. Absolutely. The handling is different,
6: Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, the the general behaviours of each species is the same, but the technicalities of handling a wild animal that you've got to you know medicate feed and all that sort of thing is vastly
1: different to a captive animal yeah right mm, 100%. interesting interesting well look uh on to captive animals for just a minute um we're going to do our first bit of new research uh our first bit of new research at repex uh, <laughs> very exciting um so we've got the uh i don't even know how to pronounce that Uninix and Lewin paper from 2017. Evidence-based reptile housing and nutrition from veterinary clinics uh, of uh, Northern America, Exotic Animals, uh, Issue 20. Um, Straight from the introduction here. Uh, The class of reptiles contains approximately 10,000 extant species. Whereas large differences in ecology occur, there are also commonalities. This article aims to describe these commonalities and translate these to general guidelines for housing and feeding reptiles based on peer-reviewed publications. Species-specific guidelines are beyond the scope of this article, owing to the aforementioned ecological diversity. It is important that species-specific information is gathered... For the proper care of a species. So, you know, obviously a lot of the individual, um, you know, responsibility there to make sure that you've done your research is basically so, um, what they're saying. Um, now, some of the key points here. Um, yeah. Species-specific meeting husbandry requirements, basically the thing we, we've been banging on about, right?
5: That's right. You yeah. don't want to take
1: a southern species mm. and... Uh, Give it a desert uh, oh. environment or You're not a desert species. Do it
2: any no. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, or,
1: or at the same time, you know, if you take a desert species and keep it too cool, not going right. to be happy. No. Yeah,
2: well, I have a big difference between my enclosures my it's in for my bearded and for my blue tiny, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And forest dragons, they are dragons, but they
6: have vastly different humidity and temperature requirements. Yep.
1: And, uh, uh, and, of course, uh, that's uh, point number two. Field data on diets and microclimate provide an indication on husbandry requirements, right? So a lot of the time there is going to be some field data that has been collected by people in the past that will mm. hopefully be useful for your housing requirements.
6: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Very cool. I mean, uh, this is all fairly uh, straightforward stuff um, that pretty much any reptile keeper should really know before they get into it. For example, providing ultraviolet light via suitable lamps.
2: <laughs> You'd hope so.
1: Um, just uh, uh, to, to extend on that, so UVB, it's between 290 and 320 nanometers frequency and it facilitates the conversion of 7D hydrocholesterol to vitamin D. Now vitamin D is very, very important, it regulates calcium and uh, potassium metabolism and plenty of other biological actions throughout the body. Um, frequency uh, of uh, vitamin D deficiency in reptiles is very common and it uh, together leads to what is uh, a complex of diseases known as metabolic bone disorder yeah. or disease. Um, do you see a lot of that from uh, uh, keepers?
6: That... that. It's like waving a red rag at a ball with me because I think there is
2: zero
6: excuse for metabolic bone disease. Yeah. It's so easy not to give. Yeah, exactly. it's so easy to do. It's like giving a dog heartworm prevention
2: <laughs> yeah. to prevent
1: heartworm, yeah. you know. Yeah. Or, or, or not giving them uh, tick treatments and then wondering why you got ticks and fleas.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep.
1: So it is one of those very basic fundamentals. No um,
2: excuse
6: for it. And you can buy, um, when you were talking about the levels of UVB, you can actually buy UVB meters too. To Actually, check that the output of your light ah, is right. what it says it should be doing. Oh, I fantastic, didn't know you could that's, do
1: that. that's actually very, very interesting. Um, um, I'm going to have to get some of those. That sounds like a fantastic, fantastic way to uh, monitor your UVB output because you never know how old those bulbs are going to be no. some of the time and yeah, when they're exactly. going to be producing the right amount. Sometimes
2: bulb. they're still producing light, but they're not actually producing the UV. Edge, well, they're supposed, what they're supposed
6: to be changed every six months. So, mm. I actually write on the, the uh, bulb when I screw it in, when it put goes a date in. on oh, it, yeah. That's a good idea, but I also. Also, as a backup, I have a little laminated card on every single enclosure which tells me when I have to change that UV light. Mm, yeah, that's a excellent. Good
1: idea. excellent. Excellent, excellent. Um, moving on. Uh, again, more stuff that we already know. Yeah. Providing a varied diet seems beneficial for most species, um, and providing several microclimates per enclosure seems beneficial. Um, so look, uh, this is a fantastic paper, really. If you uh, haven't done a lot of research yet um, into the animals that you're going to get, evidence-based reptile housing and nutrition. What more do you want? But um, you know, if you are already a little bit uh, keeping uh, reptiles, and this is this is kind of like the stuff that. You learnt a long time ago. <laughs> but you know
6: what? We keep telling, we keep teaching people. So
1: well, look. That's why those education courses are so important so I, for you guys to keep them going. Um, I yep. mean, uh, obviously, every time there, there's a big demand for them, for what I hear. Yeah. Um, oh
6: look, I don't, I don't. I'm not even bothered if people are coming along just to learn from the husbandry section of our workshop. Yeah, of course. Because if I can change somebody's practice to correct.
2: You're saving yourself for work job. later. Yeah, I've absolutely. Done my job. Exactly. Yeah, and you
1: definitely helped that animal
2: yeah. in its future. And yeah. I think that'd be really helpful. Like uh, a lot of people want to get into reptiles and just don't know where to start. Absolutely, and they might get one and not know what they're doing. So I remember I fumbled a bit in the beginning. It's just like you just got to kind of research as much as you can. And, and then some if of the you information find, is yeah, correct. It's like exactly you there. get really conflicting information mm-hmm. online. So I definitely found doing a course early on to be a really helpful experience yeah. for me as a keeper. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, I think that's about all we have time for uh, today. Um, Annette, thank you so much. Not
6: a problem. Well, hope thank you. For well, yeah. I know we could. we'll have to have
1: you on the show probably to really talk reptile uh, rehab yeah. at some point sure. if uh, if you're keen to come up and join us yeah, or Absolutely. All right, wonderful, guys. That's Annette Bird from Reptile Rehab re- Reptile Rehabilitation queensland.org You can also check them out on Google and Facebook, um, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty of other places they can find. But you just Google, <laughs> Google,
0: Google. All right.
1: All right. No worries. Thanks thank again, Annette. Um, we'll talk to you guys soon.
2: Thank cool, you.
1: Thanks. All right. Cheers, bye. And we're back. Guys, we're uh, having a great time here at RepX Brisbane Reptile Expo, and uh, I got two amazing morph breeders here. We've got Wayne Larks from Morelia Magic. How you doing, mate? Yeah, good. And uh, you guys had those uh, amazing moon blows, and uh, the, uh, yeah, dude, that, um, that paradox is still one of the most mind blowing snakes I've seen in a long time. Yeah,
3: man, she's beautiful. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, now, uh, paradoxes as well, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an albino that can produce melanin. I, I heard some, some theories that that might be chimerism.
3: Yeah, that's what we believe. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: That's fascinating.
3: Yeah, So chimerism
1: is. is basically what the uh, two embryos fusing in, uh, yeah. in development, and one of them is albino and the other one is not. Is that correct? Basically, yeah. Wow. That's yeah. very cool. How do you line breed that?
3: Hey, how do you line breed <laughs> it? <laughs> well,
1: you can't. Yeah. <you're> yeah. <laughs>
8: that's
3: good.
1: Is, is, is it, uh, I mean, you know, are we hoping to find mutations that lead to more, more
8: chimerism?
1: <laughs> well, Open
3: to anything, eh? Yes.
8: <laughs> <laughs> from what I've seen of chimerism, it does seem to pop up in the same places, so it doesn't seem to be replicatable. But funny how it seems to be replicated by the same animals. Yeah, that's bizarre, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah so it's like as if they have the ability to produce this defect. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And of yeah. course, you're uh, you're listening to Mr. Joe Ball right now from BlueTongueLizard.com.au, the fantastic Blue Tongue Lizard breeder. Um, how
8: are you enjoying the show today, mate? Yeah, it's great, mate. Massive turnout. Love it. yeah Yeah. yeah. Very
1: busy, very busy. Uh, and uh, is there uh, is there any more that you've seen out here from uh, from other breeders that you're? Uh, that I'm all your bueno stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm always laughs> at yeah, not surprising. They are absolutely phenomenal. Now, how long have you been um, breeding these animals? Is uh, I mean, first of all, the carpets so uh, you have so many varieties. of.
7: how long have you been into that?
1: Oh,
3: uh, like nearly twenty years now. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: And uh, what did you start with?
3: I started with water python.
1: All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Oh, everybody's got their um, their their personal bicycle, and they? Yeah. On.
8: And and yourself, Joe? Where did you start? My keeping? first reptiles were um, red-eared sliders or terrapins. That's right, because you started keeping them in the UK. In yeah, the UK, yeah. So I'm I lucky or unlucky enough to have some of those um, things that you guys seem to think are sort of out of reach, if you like, some of the iguanas and. Stuff like that. So, yeah, um, just
1: stuff that we would not be able. Yeah, to keep. that's it.
8: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do,
1: uh, I, I know you're, you're you're big into your natives, Wayne. Uh,
8: do, do you have any desire
1: to keep a lot of international exotics, or not so much? Wow, oh, mate, I'd love a komodo. <laughs> <laughs> Who would love it? Like? <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. All right, cool. So um, whoever can get us a komodo dragon yeah. as soon as possible, um, that would be greatly appreciated for Wayne. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't think they're gonna find one here unfortunately. No, 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 There's some fantastic monitors around. We've seen a few Spencer's monitors and some mountains and stuff at the back corner. So there's some cool cool monitors, but
3: uh yeah. I've oh, yeah, got, got my monitors, got the parentis and the that. So Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh
1: actually yeah, didn't uh, you guys have that big outdoor enclosure that you recently put up? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. That looked fantastic by the way. Big uh, glass uh, glass wall and you know, plenty of room for them to run around outside. It Hi, oh, awesome. yeah, it's
3: amazing. You know, lizards are totally different, so it's, it's good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right, and definitely much more in need of that UV source as well. Than a lot of oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they
3: get as much as they like, and they get <laughs> out of it as much as they like too. it's yeah. so. cool. Ah, very cool.
1: Um, now, uh, I guess for uh, either one of you guys, how did you get into um, into morph breeding itself, or morph genetics? Like, was it something that you fell into, or was it something that you, uh, you attacked? I'll ask
8: you first, Joe. Uh, I, sp- I suppose it's, for me it was a, a bit of an obsessive-compulsive disorder. that <laughs> I, I just wanted to keep all these animals and. Once yes, I started seeing some cool variances and got involved in it, every time something new came along, I, I just got a habit. Yeah, right. And then once you start reading them I and you, you see the possibilities that are uh, sort of possible over and above that, it just grows and just gets out of control from there, really. Yeah, the obsession yeah. just keeps uh, yeah. getting getting worse and worse. It definitely comes hmm. from the obsession side of it. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and that lead, led you into the morph, morph breeding mostly? I so. think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
8: I mean, initially it was just a reptile fascination, but once I actually started breeding the animals and started becoming fascinated in the different possibilities and sort of anomalies that could pop out, then, yeah, it was a, a natural progression, if you like. Yeah, yeah.
1: very
3: cool. Any self Well, <clears throat> oh, Pretty much the same thing, you know. Ever since I've seen um, an exotic, you know, like... And seeing that what they do, well, sort of thing, it was like I got to have give this a go. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. I just yeah felt felt the need to get involved. Hey? Uh,
3: yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I just thought we could make some really nice stuff, you know. Yeah,
1: Right. And uh, and uh, okay, so I guess uh, you know there's a lot of people who are out there who will breed things occasionally, but you guys take this a bit more seriously with the line breeding and the development of these morphs. Um, I guess uh, yeah, just for our audience uh, and our listeners, how would you describe a, a morph itself, and how do you how do you develop one?
8: Well, they are described as non-naturally occurring, but in many ways they actually are naturally occurring. I mean, these, these genetic um, these genetics do actually exist in all of these animals' makeup, so it is a natural occurrence. Yes, some of them wouldn't last as long in the wild, but it is actually there. And in many ways, it's, 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 it's a great selection process to make them more appealing for pets. So... It, it, it sort of moves these animals from the classification which they're currently under is fauna, or, uh, you know, native fauna, in my opinion, to pets. Right. It makes them accessible for everyone here today, whether it's a kid or, or whoever. Nice. And, that, and that's the part I see them play, and that, that to me, is what they are. You know, if that answers the question. It's...
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, so, um, and how about yourself, mate? Um, your
3: opinion? Uh, my opinion is that it's basically the same
1: you know <laughs> right so but, um, a, a lot of these morphs are, are you guys specifically you know breeding them for uh, particular people that you have in mind or
8: oh I think it, it follows a specific i not, you go first with that one because I don't want to uh, take all the thunder
1: <laughs> yeah I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know like is there a selection process that you yourself use when you're looking at snakes, uh, if you've got a new clutch uh, that you've uh, crossed? Or, or uh, are you I, uh, always looking for something I've always
3: always got my eyes open for anything, you know, like, yeah. looking, looking. And I was actually obsessed with making, like, um, snows
1: and stuff. Oh, right, the really white moon blows and snows and things like that? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. before before that, I even had xanthics or anything like that. So I was I was looking for it, and
1: I found it, so... Yeah. And, uh, and, and how do you develop, like, a, a breeding line from that? Do you, do you just make sure you find a healthy partner that is, uh, you know, not of the same genetic stock and prove that it breeds true over, over a couple of generations?
3: I, I actually got a pair, so... Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, so so that was pretty easy. Yeah,
1: breeding pair straight up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... That's um. Cool. Yeah, I don't know where I was going to go with that, yeah. but... Well, uh, do you find that you've got... You know, you know, create a lot of new interesting morphs throughout the breeding process, or you know, are you are you more looking to?
3: source Oh uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at that. Looking at them as like pets, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Like say, yeah, if if it's if it looks nice, I'll I'll, I'll try and breed it and see if we can get it nicer, you know? Yeah, cool, cool,
1: cool.
3: Um, yeah, I just I just enjoy the the genes and shit as well, you know, like trying to figure out stuff like.
1: It is a bit of Always a challenge to figure on out something. what's being expressed where and, um, you know, what's co-dominant, what's recessive, what's yeah, dominant. Yeah. It is very interesting and, uh, you know, it must be a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, very cool.
3: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I don't know, every, you, you keep your eye open, try your best, you know, I don't know. It's just it's something you, I have to do. Like. <laughs> <laughs> bit oh, of a calling. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Cool.
8: It's cool. Cool, cool and yourself um, yeah for for me I think it it follows a precedent in many ways I mean you look at the 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 ball pythons and corn snakes and and the path they took in in the US then for me it was with Blutons it was how could I emulate some of that with what was here you know and yeah it's taken the same path but it's also taken a different path and some of that maps itself with what actually is available if you know what I mean so you've got your hypermels There, there wasn't I've never seen a hypermel, for instance, in other species like we've got with blue-tongues, so that's dictated a slightly different path with blue-tongues, but there was also the precedence there that other species have shown, like your snows and that, we could do that, but we've got this great hypermel, and we could do, we could make the lavas, and we could do this, and we could Mm. do that, so... Something a little bit unique, anyway. Yeah, that's right, so it sort of, in many ways, has a path already, but it sort of has its own ingredients and flavors along the way too right yeah that's fascinating
1: yeah. so like even even you know with your you know hyper melanistic individual you've got these amazing uh, black animals and that's cool in itself but that did end up leading to the development of the logo. Uh, yeah right? that's
0: right mm. so yeah very cool very cool
1: um now yeah, um uh, we don't have a uh, full notes for our uh, latest bit of new research here alan et al 2018 but uh, this is a fascinating uh, fascinating little uh, thing that pops up. Um, molecular evidence for the first records of facultative parthenogenesis in a lapid snakes. So uh, I think they proved this down at uh, Venom Labs down in South Australia. They've had uh, both uh, death adders and taipans uh, produce offspring without mating. So female parthenogenic death adders yeah. and, uh, and taipans. Weird, well, uh, Who
8: documented that? Is that Nathan Dunstan down there? Uh, I don't it? know.
1: That's uh, you, The paper is Alan et al., molecular yeah.
3: evidence yeah. Uh, for the Luke first
1: uh,
8: is it? Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 Luke Allen? Yeah, Luke
1: Allen. Yeah, Luke. So yeah, down at down at uh, I, I believe Venom Labs. Um, yeah, could, Venom Supplies. Yeah, Venom i Supplies yeah. right, down the south Yeah, yeah. it's great. So it doesn't retain sperm then or, uh, in those
8: animals, or it is definitely well. Palo- uh, palo- I, palo- I believe genetics it's genetics or whatever. The, the molecular
1: evidence is uh, showing that it is actually parthenogenic. <laughs> now, yeah. I do remember there was uh, records of like a taipan that had been in captivity for three years and then it produced a clutch. Yeah. But there, there was uh, it was actually multiple paternity in that clutch. Yeah. Right. So that was that was sperm storage. Yeah. This is uh, true. Genesis. So Genesis being virgin birth. Yeah. Um, as line breeders, my question is, does that make you excited that you can just once you've got your line, you can maybe you know. Find out that some of them are pathogenic, and then you don't need to worry about yeah, pollution. Would be nice. Would be nice. Yeah. yeah. As soon as you get your, uh, you know, your, your final, more moon glow, you just start producing pure, clean moon glows Yeah, that'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be that's nice.
8: right. If you don't need the um, the genetics from the sire, if you've already got a female that's, say, a moon glow, and she can just every couple of years spit out a clutch of moon glows for you without any any, any energy yeah yeah. It, or, or or doing yeah it'd be pretty pretty
1: cool <laughs> I, I i hear it's been um it's been heard in a few other species other than just the taipan and
8: death adder, is it? i think some of the big oh, monitors can, yeah. can do that too yeah, yeah the, the uh,
3: komodo the, komodo in a zoo never been near another komodo had babies yeah, blade right. eggs. so
1: a komodo dragon went uh, had hyphenogenica yeah yeah when was that uh, I don't know a few years back a few years ago Oh, I must have missed it I, I had no idea that Komodos could also go parthenogenic that's um, that's fascinating oh, no. I, now I know why you want one <laughs> no, no, that's not what I want. Get some cool morph colours out of it and then just start producing them straight down the line, all clone style. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, all right, guys, I think that's about all we have time for at the moment. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, is there anything else that you guys are keen to see out here at, uh, today at the uh, expo? Is there any displays that have caught your eye other than uh, each oh, other's,
3: of course? I haven't seen any really. <laughs> You've yeah. behind once, the desk. Once the crowds I'll be, I'll
8: be die, die off, let me know a bit me and Wayne I'll probably go for a
3: little wander yeah sounds good for sure for sure it's been flat out down there oh it has yeah Yeah, it's
1: uh, full every time I try to walk past (laughs) yeah (laughs) alright guys so that's uh, Wayne Larks from uh, Morelia Magic where uh, where can people catch you online Morelia Magic on Instagram Facebook
3: Um, yeah Morelia Morelia Magic page or or just on Wayne Larks.
1: Yeah. All right. No worries. And uh, Joe Ball, obviously, uh, at au, and yeah. uh, on Facebook as well.
8: Yeah. I use that name. I use that name across all social media platforms to yeah. try and make it easier.
1: Nice one. Yeah.
8: All right, guys. Thank cool. you so much Thanks for again, us. guys. Hope you guys have a good day.
1: No worries. we Will do. All right. Talk to you guys. Bye. Cheers. Bye. All right, everybody, we're back here at Repex Reptile Expo. Uh, having a great time here, um, and I've got some uh, fantastic uh, venomous snake guests here. I've got uh, the fantastic and very knowledgeable Mr. Neville Burns over here in the corner. How are you doing, mate?
0: I'm fine, thanks, mate.
1: And uh, and uh, what are you up here doing? You're uh, promoting uh, the book, the snake? Uh,
0: <laughs> I think I've sold everything except one book today, so that's good. <laughs> excellent, excellent. What's the title of that book as well, by the way? I saw it up there. Okay. It's actually titled A Gift from the Snake that Bidding, and uh, you have to read the whole book to get the explanation for the title Sounds it's on good. the last page <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah and, and uh you know for those of you who don't know uh neville burns has uh you know you've been uh, around reptiles and handling snakes for uh oh god knows how long how long when did you first get
0: involved with uh, venomous um, snakes 60 nearly 61 years ago <laughs> <laughs> wow
1: that's yeah twice as long as, as some of us have been on this planet and uh, um, look, uh, we're very, very lucky as well to be joined by uh, Miss Christina Zdenk from uh, the Australian Her- 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 Herpetology School. Is
9: that right? Yeah. Australian uh, School of Herpetology? Yeah, Australian School of Herpetology. That's, that's right. right.
1: That's right. And uh, also from the uh, Death Adder Project, with, uh, looking at uh, death adders up on Magnetic Island at the moment, is it? That's correct. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. And um, wow, there's uh, there's actually some really, really cool displays here as well. Is there is there anything that you're being uh, particularly interested in? Yeah. Um, any of the displays that you've seen really catching your eye?
9: Oh, I reckon it's been a great turnout. There was a heap of people initially, and I don't think <laughs> the exhibitors could keep up initially. That was really great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's, it's been a, a great success. Out. It's been fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, look at this. It's, a, it's huge. I mean, there must have been, you know, thousands and thousands of people through. What do you reckon, Neville? One of the biggest uh, expos you've been to? Uh, you must have been through quite a few in your
0: time, I imagine. Uh, it certainly compares with the best I've seen uh, in Australia. Um, I, I think it's a very successful day, and I agree that you know there's a lot of people here who've been educated, and that's what it's all about: getting people to familiarise themselves with the hobby, with reptiles, and. It also represents an interest in conservation generally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: No, there's a lot of uh, conservation-minded people here, a lot of people um, you know, from uh, various uh, research and scientific and management backgrounds. So, yeah, there's a lot to learn for everybody here, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, awesome. Now, um, yeah, um, I guess we want to talk about venomous snakes while we've got both of you here. Um, I'm also a you know, snake catcher and keeper myself, but I'd like to hear from you guys, uh, I suppose. Um, uh, why, do you guys, uh, why do you guys keep venomous snakes, and why do you think people in general like to keep venomous snakes. I mean, it's not just the thrill factor.
0: For me, that's a question I've never been able to answer. I just feel that I was hardwired to it. Right. And and I had no uh, chance of escaping a love of, of venomous snakes. They fascinate me. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, the fact that they were the underdog, they were the ones that everybody wanted to kill, and I want to educate people and say, they are not nasty animals. Yeah. You know, they've got a place in, in our ecology.
1: That underdog factor is definitely a big draw card for some of us, uh, I can definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, rooting for the animal that seems to be a little bit downtrodden. Uh, yeah. That seems, that seems to be the one that needs a bit of help. Christina, what do you reckon?
9: Yeah, uh, I reckon loving venomous snakes is kind of like supporting the losing team all the time. People <laughs> are asking, why would you do that?
1: Uh, why are you still wearing those colors? <laughs> why are you still got that jersey on?
9: But, yeah, I reckon fascination, um, passion for me. Ever since I was a little girl, I had snakes. They weren't venomous at that stage. It sort of evolved into that realm. And, you know, being in Australia, of course, we are the land of the reptile, over a 1,000 native species here. It's pretty remarkable when you put us in the context of the rest of the world. And even, you know, when you look at venomous snakes as well, the diversity that we have. And, of course, within the venom, there's all these toxins that can... It's a massive bioresource, actually. A lot of people don't realize, but
5: these toxins... Yeah, it's a big toxins, cocktail of proteins that could be yeah, very handy for other things as well.
9: Absolutely. There's been there's been several drugs that are saving thousands of lives every year that have been developed from snake toxins.
1: Is, is warfarin the, uh, the um,
9: anticoagulant, for uh,
1: I believe, was developed from Bothrop's venom? Um, so
9: maybe th- you're may thinking of uh, Captopril. Okay. Um, so this one... That one, it that's a major one. That's like a billion dollar market, and um, it, it's for people who have high blood pressure. Yeah, so right. It helps to lower the blood pressure, so yeah. it's pretty handy. You just, and uh, it, it's, it's not like you need to constantly milk the snake in order to make the drug. What they do is scientists isolate that toxin, and then they characterize it, and then can synthesize it in the yeah, laboratory without,
1: without having to have the venom. That's
9: that's right Wonderful. because. Yeah, that would be dangerous as well. <laughs> <laughs> a
1: little bit more challenging getting the venom every time, uh, I can imagine.
0: Well, I know last year, um, Professor Brian Fry told me that one toxin from a South American viper, the medical... Um Paid one billion dollars US for it wow. in one year, mm. wow! Because of its value for medical work. Yeah,
1: so it's, uh, aside from their value as uh, you know aesthetics for being beautiful animals and just their intri- intrinsic natural value in their own right, their importance for our ecosystems. Um, That's a massive medical value, and uh, so many of these venoms are unexplored for their medical potential. Is that right?
9: Oh, absolutely. So one snake in its venom can have up to 150 different types of toxins. Wow. And we're literally just barely scraping the surface. And, you know, of course, with a lot of research, it's difficult to acquire funding. But the little that we do get, like, so I'm a part of the uh, Brian Fry's lab at the University of Queensland. So I'm doing a PhD on snake venom, um, Australian elapids. And yeah, what little money we do have, we we, we use it well, and, and we get a lot of papers out of it. And um, yeah, it, it's awesome for drug design and development, but also for understanding the evolution of these snakes. And um, yeah, I'm I, I'm interested in on in a basic level, but I think the general public also can appreciate them if they can just open their eyes just a little bit. And uh, hold back their fear but I guess doing venomous snake demonstrations I mean Neville's been doing that for I don't know how many years I've been doing it for eight years and we're slowly getting the message out there and if you look here at the expo you've got probably you know over a hundred kids and they're just so excited about reptiles and it's really lovely to see
1: yeah no absolutely Uh, you you do see you know a lot of the young minds out here getting very curious and very excited with some of the amazing morphs and colors it is really cool. Um, as, a, as a long time snake demonstrator, Neville, um, what do you think are some of the best, um, I mean for people who do want to educate others about snakes? Do you have any tips or things that you like to personally pass on to the public when you do your demos?
0: I think the big thing is that snakes have always been seen as an aggressive animal and you know, take for example the eastern brown snake. An eastern brown snake is a very highly strung nervous animal. but. They will not chase people. They don't look for trouble. They'd much rather use their speed to escape from the situation.
1: Absolutely. But when
0: they're cornered, they have the right to defend themselves. And I try to point out to people in my shows by putting a brown snake right at my feet, standing still. Their memory for movement's about three seconds. Three seconds after I've taken a step, if they haven't bitten me, they're not going to do if I stand still. Yeah, sure. And I've done that with taipans as well. Um, tiger snakes, black snakes. Just to illustrate that this vision we have of snakes as a nasty animal is completely false. Yeah.
9: And there's actually there's scientific proof of this as well. Rick Shine, a uh, famous herpetologist, uh, published over 800 uh, peer-reviewed articles. He did a paper on eastern browns and he sent herpetologists out and they were tracking several um, I don't know how exactly how many. They were tracking the, the brown snakes. And so they, they were tracking the people and the snakes and, and recorded what happened when they encountered the snakes. And I think it was something like 450 encounters. And of that, only 12 of them did the snake actually turn around and approach the person. The vast majority of them, their first decision is to go the opposite direction. So that many times, we don't know that snakes have chosen that path because we don't see it. Right. And then the second largest percentage of the choice that the snake made was just to still and rely on their crypsis, their, their camouflage. And the very last resort like, was...
1: To display the f- to, to, rather to than display yeah, yeah.
9: Yeah. To display and actually to give a strike. But it was, it was 3% of yeah. them did that.
1: Well, I, I remember, I think it was in like 2000, there was the Whittaker et al. paper um, about the defensive strike of the Eastern Brown where they, they took a bunch of them into uh, warmed-up enclosures and introduced some spongy rubber hands and feet. And uh, there was individuals that they could not get to strike at the uh, hands and feet. And only about 14% of the uh, active strikes were potentially envenomating. So there was dry bites, there was head butting, there was uh, shallow scrapes that didn't have venom. And then on top of that, there was individual brown snakes who would not attack at all when yeah, cornered. Yeah. Is, mean, that, is that what you find as well?
0: Dry bites with snakes are far more common than some people admit. Right. Um, I'm not proud of the fact that in 60 years I've been bitten 12 times. Mm. But I've been to hospital for everyone. I wisely suggested people treat it as a life threatening emergency. Absolutely. I've only been treated five times over 12. The largest Eastern Brown that ever bit me failed to inject venom. Three Death Adders failed to inject random. A Tiger Stake failed to inject random. The so <laughs> the odds are really in your favour. The odds are really in your favour that if you wisely treat it as a life threatening emergency, yeah. realise that first aid is your responsibility, not the government's, not the doctor's. Yeah carry out the first aid, which the guy that died a few weeks ago in Tamworth apparently did not do. Didn't use a pressure mobiliser? No, he no they it. didn't. He no. Ne- okay. never put a bandage on. I'm not saying it would have saved him. It was obviously a, a, an envenomated bite, but it would have given him a much better chance for the doctors to well, be able to do the thing that's pulling through. Right.
9: As far as I'm aware, there hasn't been a fatality from snake bite in Australia when people have put on the first bite, uh, snake bite bandage immediately within one or two minutes of being bitten so that's over 40 years since its conception
1: and, and, and again, the uh, uh, PIT uh, technique is always being updated and improved, and they're saying now start distally on the limb, and no need to start above the bite site. And all these updates are always constantly being made to it, so you can always find the most uh, recent and relevant pressure mobilisation technique stuff on, for example, uh, the Queensland Health website, the St. John's Hospital website, and, and all these other fantastic resources. And
9: if you forget any of that, and you can't remember which is the most updated version, just know the basic concept, and that is the venom pressure is initially on- not injected into the bloodstream. It's just under the skin in what's called the lymphatic system. And that being injected there, it means that if you compress the skin, so using a a compression bandage up the limb, then you are simply slowing those large proteins down. And it's only until they get to the lymph nodes where then it can enter into the bloodstream. And that's where it can have the systemic deleterious effects.
1: Right, so you can trap it in the lymphatic system before it gets into the capillaries and bleeds into the veins and then gets circulated?
0: Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. I think a very important point is, too, that, that bandage should never be removed, as some doctors have wanted to do at a hospital before the anti-venom was ready for injection if it was needed. Totally agree. Because I've seen people collapse within seconds of that bandage coming off.
9: It's opening the floodgates. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Right. So you may be asymptomatic. They think, oh, it's just a dry bite. No worries. And a guy yeah. nearly died on Thursday Island just north of Cape York from this very mistake. And it can be a fatal mistake.
1: Absolutely. Wow. So make sure so anti-venom is on hand before you remove that pressure
0: mobilisation oh, and, and, and let if the a lymphatics doctor... flush. And adrenaline. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and adrenaline to get your heart. A, y- lot, y- a yeah. lot of people, I mean, I'm one of them, so I'm very conscious of it. I suffered the worst possible reaction of venom anaphylaxis. So you get anaphylactic from the
1: snake antivenom? I've only, yeah, I've or only from the venom. had
0: antivenom for one bite, and uh-huh. I was declared clinically dead three times.
1: Wow. So, so the uh, antivenom was uh, almost worse for you than the uh, previous Absolutely. bites? Well, Definitely in, more than
0: in, the previous dry bites. In the beginning, yeah. yeah, where there's very um, little facilities for uh, life support, which should be present, if you're treating a snake bite in Australia, um, 50% of people die from the antivenom. Wow. So their policy in a lot of areas now, unless you're dying of a snake bite, you don't get the antivenom. Then they'll take the chance. Yeah, wow. Bugger, that's crazy.
9: But that's also why it's a requirement in Australia for a doctor to be present if antivenom is administered because you often have... An anaphylactic uh, reaction, and so you need to have the adrenaline on hand and in appropriate dosages.
1: Right, right. So, look, people people do ask me that question. Is like, do you carry anti venom around? It's like, well, first of all, no, we can't. It has to be stored um, at very, very low temperature, out of UV. It can't be physically manipulated too much, and so I I can't just you know stick it in the back of my car in a, in, and, and like expect it, the heat uh, and temperature will be okay. It, Is that
9: right? It's more the expense that's prohibitory. Um, yes. It does need to be refrigerated, so that would cause an issue uh, for people who are traveling around. Um, But the main thing, too, it needs to be in a clinical setting when you are administered because of the potential for anaphylaxis afterwards.
1: So that's a massive risk for people who would self-administer at home if they got bitten by their own snake. Uh, Who's there to watch your anaphylaxis? Yeah, well...
9: All you do is put on the bandage and it gains you between six to ten hours of time frame before needing the anti venom. as long as you're standing still, you know, you just wait for the ambulance to come to you.
1: Sure. And I, I guess the question from there on is, um, how truly dangerous are Australian snakes? I mean, particularly in comparison to other countries, we have uh, some of the most highly venomous snakes. But... A very low amount of fatalities. Well, I think on average, what, two to five per year is somewhere where we float
0: around. Well, I mean, a few years back in the same period that eight people died of snake bite, 40 were killed by horses. And I do a lot of shows and egg shows, and I'll point to the horses i say, How many do looked at those animals and said, They're dangerous? Yeah, None of course. them. Yeah. But I tip out a little snake, venomous or not, oh, it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's, it's the, the fear. Perception.
1: Yeah. So that, that, that fear and understanding uh, of, uh, well, uh, fear or lack of understanding of how, uh, snakes don't actually want to bite us at all. Well,
0: uh, honeybees kill more Australians yeah. and Americans than all the other animals together. Yeah,
1: I think, well, was hmm. it around 36 per year from invertebrates yeah, yeah. due yeah. to that anaphylactic, anaphylactic effect, um, but still due to the insect bite, uh, which is way more than the two to five that we have from snake bites. Yeah.
9: And the people who aren't taking bites from snakes, it's often people who are trying to kill the snake or they yeah. actually exactly. actively go after it. Yeah, that's So right. you leave them all alone, they'll leave you alone. Yeah. You know, you have to be pretty unlucky, and if you do, you know, that, that's when you put on the bandage and we're, we're in a very lucky country where we do have good access to good quality antivenoms yeah, right. and putting us in the context uh, internationally, that is not the case in many tropical countries, if you look at Africa there's hundreds if not thousands of people dying, uh, India as well, Asia, you know their are antivenoms. A lot of them aren't working really well, or they don't have good access to them, yeah. um, or the wrong antivenom is given. Yeah. So we have one of the lowest rates of uh, of snake bite deaths in in the world, particularly given the number of highly venomous snakes we do have. For instance, the inland taipan. There's been 23 people in Australia who've been bitten by the world's arguably the world's most venomous snake, and none of them have died. Yeah. Right. they all got they all, good treatment. They well. All- And none of them were in its habitat. They're all (laughs) snake handlers. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, look, I I, I do remember reading that, you know, the majority of people who get bitten are, um, you know, it's not out in the country on bushwalks. It's in urban areas. It's in, uh, you know, in and around houses when people are trying to catch or kill, right? So Mm -hmm. it is entirely putting yourself at risk of venomous snakes. If you don't pick up or approach venomous snakes in the wild, uh, they're not going to do the same to you. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's it. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, this relocation of snakes has become, it's gone from being... Relocation of snakes, I believe, has gone from being um, what we thought of as a great um, conservation measure to something that we have to really question because snakes do have an instinct to come back to where they're taken from. They've recently done... They've recently... They've recently done um, an experiment in America where they moved 12 of the uh, Burmese pythons in the uh, Florida area, 30 kilometres, they all came back. 30 kilometres? 30 kilometres.
1: That's huge. So 30 kilometres, uh, you can translocate them 30 kilometres and they'll still come back from that distance.
0: Yep. And this is the problem that I've seen people relocate snakes to the opposite side of a highway and those snakes are instinctively heading back and getting run over, and a friend of mine in Darwin, he's been actually, he's the government paid snake catcher there he's found that a large percentage of snakes that he has found, removed, relocated and put a uh, chip in have turned back, particularly if they were caught in an area where they were feeding around a bird aviary, chicken house or something like that. So
1: like with a lot of animals, if there's resources there, they're likely to return? Absolutely, yeah,
0: they seem to know.
9: They also have to fight for the territory and if they've already done that in that area then that's where they feel secure and they so they not only know where to hunt and um, and what to expect and where they can hide but yeah they also um, that's their territory but back to the relocation of snakes bit um, there's a great study down in Victoria with tiger snakes and they found that when they did remove those snakes these problem snakes from people's houses the home range of those individuals actually increased significantly so we think we may be doing, you know, ourselves a favour, whereas we we could be exacerbating the problem if we don't understand the science. And I guess I'll just do a little plug for the death adder project. That's what I'm working on with the death adders, and I'll be going to Magnetic Island um, hopefully later this year. But looking at what are are those snakes, uh, what's their survival rate of the ones that have been relocated from people's houses, and can we understand them a bit better to hopefully reduce the pet-snake conflict and the human-snake conflict as well.
1: Right, that's fascinating. So, that, that's the Death Adder project that you, uh, you guys are continuing on up at Magnetic Island. Fascinating, fascinating project, obviously. Now, um, we, uh, a lot of us as snake catchers kind of, you know, we've, we do see evidence of this, we read evidence of it, and we just generally kind of feel it in our bones that a lot of these snakes will... Uh, you know, if you move them out of their home range, they're going to look for features that they recognise. Right. instead of actually using their secretive little back routes from one house to another, they're going to be searching and they're going to be lost. And those searching lost snakes are the ones that are most likely to run into trouble. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've called for a uh, conference on this subject in South Australia towards the end of the year and uh, they've asked me to be presented there if it goes ahead and I said, well, my aspect would be to talk about educating the public because we the humans that have caused the problem. I feel sorry for snakes in the outer suburbs of Sydney or Brisbane or anywhere else where their habitat's been destroyed. They're forced to come into backyards. They're not there to bite people. And it's very rarely an emergency. And I, I also feel there's a lot of people out there that are trying to make money out of relocating snakes and doing it when it's not necessary. I've never done it as a business. It's something I provide as a service for the sake of the people that are worried about it and the snake but these people are causing a great deal of fear and it only becomes an emergency usually when people interfere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as we mentioned, it is those people the, the majority of people getting bitten are those people in urban areas who are picking up venomous snakes or approaching them and trying to injure them and kill them.
9: So, so I do uh, snake relocations like Neville was just talking about and we don't do it as a business, it's just there as a service for people so this is in the Bow Desert area with my partner Chris Hay and If we know it's a python, we do try to explain to them and educate them. We take that opportunity and say, look, you know, they're not venomous. They don't have fangs, you know, and uh, if they, you know, hopefully they will choose to just keep the snake and let the snake move on or even take up residence nearby um, where the conflict comes if they've got chooks. And, you know, you do need to have proper enclosures for your chooks, particularly at night. And, you know, we just need to learn to live with these animals. They're Australian. We're Australian and um, they're not going anywhere really. So if we can learn to live with them, we'll both be better off.
1: Absolutely, so you know, uh, I I guess take home lesson, the more we learn to live with all of our venomous snakes, the better, they're reducing our rodent loads, they're reducing uh, the amount of leptospirosis and various other diseases that are carried by rodents and possums into our houses. So they are doing a good job protecting us,
0: right? Look, snakes have always been an important part of the balance, I mean, nature knows what it's doing. Snakes have hundreds of babies because maybe one in every hundred is going to live and therefore the species will continue. If they only had a few, they might be wiped out. So I think nature could take care of itself. Someone said to me the other day, how many snakes in Australia are endangered? I said, every bloody one of them. Because we are destroying habitat at such a rate. And to me, snakes represent the rest of the wildlife. It's the same with koalas. It's the same with... We've lost more mammals in 200 years than any other country in the world. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? It's disgusting. And, I mean, we're, we're a modern, um, a modern uh, race. We, we're an advanced country. We should be leading the field. We talk about what's happening with elephants and everything over in Africa, but it's worse here. And, I mean, you know, 29 mammals lost in the last few years. What the hell is happening?
1: And some of the fastest, uh, you know, deforestation rates of any country in the world. Um, are higher than in the Amazon basin, which is absolutely incredible.
9: Yeah, I think it was two years ago Australia was in the top five nations for land-clearing rates in the world. Being, you know, a first-world nation, it's pretty deplorable, I reckon.
1: So, obviously, the more we can do to educate and uh, get people on the side of uh, conservation and ecosystems, the better, right?
0: Look, I think... I don't think, as my mate Mike Cermak said, there is a political body capable of keeping us financially viable... And protecting the environment, and that's sad. For me, I, I think the environment's by far the biggest interest I've got in in the world, and I think it's the most important thing we can do. And it's time we realise what we're doing. We're we're over demanding on the lo- on the land. We use too many facilities that we don't need to. And if we all dropped our lifestyle a little bit, we'd be a lot better off.
9: I think an important distinction here to make is that. With all this land clearing, of course, the politicians that are approving these, these um, development applications, they are getting, okay, they might be creating jobs for a few years, but what's that town going to do after that? Look at the Adani mine. Okay, they promised jobs for 10 years. And then what? They're all going to want to move out because it's, it's just been raped and pillaged and it'd be a horrible place to live.
1: Jobs based on ecosystems, ecotourism and uh, services of that
9: sort uh, seem to be a little bit longer lasting. Yeah, absolutely. That's a sustainable option.
1: All right, all right. Well, guys, I think, unfortunately, that's about all we have time for today. Um, Christina, thank you so much for coming and talking uh, Venomous Snakes and uh, the Death Adder Project. Where can we catch you?
9: Uh, ChristinaZdenek.com and click on Death Adders.
1: Oh, wonderful. So you've got your own website there. People can find all your uh, publications and your work and photos and stuff there? Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, ChristinaZedenek.com, Zden- is that right? Yeah.
9: Good luck trying to spell
1: it. <laughs> well, you know, if you uh, you can find her through UQ Herb Society as well and maybe track her name down from there or
9: something. Yeah, I'm on the internet. You'll find me.
1: Yeah, okay, cool. And Neville, um, your book, obviously, uh, The Gift from the Snake That bit Him, uh, can people find that online still or...?
0: Um, Actually, if you look up Blue Mountains Reptile Awareness, you'll find my whole career is such as it is, Uh, all the aspects. And um, that's the main way I sell the books, although I do sell quite a lot to the general public at um, agricultural shows and that. Because you don't have to be a reptile enthusiast to enjoy a good adventure story. It's all true. I've even got the photos to prove it.
1: (laughs) wonderful 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 well look i can't wait to see it um thanks so much for joining us again guys we'll be back soon with some more wildlife cake and cocktails
9: thank you
0: thank you very much cheers guys bye
1: Welcome back to wildlife cake, and cake. I don't know wildlife cake and cocktails episode 24 it's been a long day here at Repex brisbane reptile expo i'm a little tired i'm starting to lose my voice but <laughs> uh, that doesn't matter because we have chili from the uq herb society and Hino as well how are you guys doing Good, thank you.
12: We're a little bit tired too. We've been here since six o'clock this morning.
1: Oh, God. And uh, you guys have uh, been busy up there uh, passing out some educational stuff,
12: obviously? We certainly have. And with the UQ Society, we've actually produced three of the six talks that's been going today.
1: Wow. So you guys are really here doing a lot of the lecturing as well. Oh, yes. All about educating. Yeah, very Mm -hmm. cool. Very cool. And how, um, Heino, obviously um, you're from Germany. I'm from
8: Germany. How, how 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 can you tell? How, can you tell?
1: <laughs> <laughs> how how are you enjoying this? Do you get a lot of uh, reptile uh, expos in Germany as well, or is is it not really a thing?
8: Apparently, there are a lot of reptile expos, but uh, I got into this hobby. A little in bit
1: later. Yeah.
11: So
0: back in Germany, I didn't have anything to do with reptiles, to be honest. Yeah, okay, cool. Nothing.
1: But you're obviously very fascinated by our Australians snakes. Oh. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So this
3: variety or whatever. So it's probably if I wouldn't be with Chile, I wouldn't know anything about reptiles. But uh, she sucked me into this hobby. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm really thankful for it. Yeah, yeah right. Secondary yeah. benefits, huh? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, very good. Um, now, um, is there anything that you guys have been particularly interested to see out here um, during the day, or yeah. some, so some species that's caught your eye, or any displays that you're uh, particularly excited to look at?
12: For me, it's actually just been more to see the amount of people that is coming and the amount yeah, right. of people that are really interested, and just the different varieties. There's a huge
1: no. amount of reptile uh, enthusiasts here. It's <laughs> just uh, like a plethora of reptile people. It's, it's fascinating to see how many people are into this hobby and into these animals, and uh, just generally like wildlife. I mean, it's, it's very cool.
12: Yeah, it certainly is, and even um, the amount of children that's coming through. So it's not just adults that are looking, you know, for their collections and things. It's great to see the amount of kids that are really interested.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, obviously, a lot of those kids are you know hopefully going to grow up into the future conservation biologists that we see in the <laughs> later on. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Monitors. Yes, yeah, so many nice monitors. Oh, the monitor lizards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, um, so yeah, you saw yeah. the Spencer's monitor being uh, carried around yeah, by reptiles. Yeah, the relocation. Spencer's. or yeah. the 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 baby um, laces over there. There's
3: baby hard. laces. The baby yeah? laces.
5: Yeah. Two babies. Oh. Yeah. There's two baby, baby lace monitors. Lady. Who's got the baby <laughs> lace monitors? Nathan's. Why wasn't I told? Nathan. Nathan. So oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Medicine. All right. I'll yeah, yeah, oh, we'll yeah, have yeah. to go. Oh, yeah. It's, it's
3: fantastic. Yeah. Oh. And oh, there are so many nice animals around. So we are actually not. Oh, I shouldn't say this. Fans of the <laughs> hybrids. Yeah. So, <laughs> so more of the natural stuff, which occurs yeah.
1: in the uh, occurs occurs is the right yeah, yeah, word. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. the wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's so more you're more awesome. into the wild type than into some of the uh, more <laughs> breeding. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. Still. Yeah. You know, there, and there is some amazing. You know. Uh, still very much wild type animals out here oh so, yes you know, uh, not everybody's going for the uh, super curated some people are staying with the naturalistic display which is nice to see as well yep and I think that's
12: where for me it comes in just because I do do work with taxonomy right. so for that reason I do like my animals that look like the wild animals that we often work with
1: right rather than something that has been tailored for people yeah exactly yeah very cool Um, Well, Chili, can you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, this is very interesting coming up, uh, the Brisbane Python Project.
12: (laughs) The Brisbane Python Project. Now, we did briefly have a little chat about this in a car many, many months ago. uh, I I hear
1: it's uh, grown a little bit since. uh,
12: It certainly has, and it's actually going to be taking off sometime soon. So um, I will be starting a PhD next month. And for that one, it will be radio tracking uh, pythons here in Brisbane. Excellent. And we're going to be looking at those that have been relocated in close to the areas where they've been having to be removed. Those that are going to be relocated a little bit further. And also those that have been rehabilitated. So they've been taken out of the wild for an injury. They've been in care, which may be anywhere up to between 6 to 18 months And then we'll actually be putting them back into the wild and actually seeing whether or not they survive once they've come into care for such a long time.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. So you guys are also doing uh, differences in uh, translocation distance?
12: Yeah, that's that is the plan. Um, because uh, the project hasn't started yet, I can't guarantee that it's going to work <laughs> out exactly like that. Sure. But I've actually had um, been doing a lot of work with a couple of snake catchers, which has actually helped me tailor my PhD before I've even started it. Yeah, right. So it's great. I don't have to spend all this time got learning. On the ground yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, just the response from snake catchers has been great because everyone wants to know: Are they actually doing the right thing by relocating or is it actually going to be harming different
1: snakes absolutely uh, it would be um fascinating uh, and very important for us to know like for especially on a species by species basis um what we can relocate uh safely and how far and where should we really be doing it i mean we we, we read about all of these animals uh, ecological requirements and and we base our decisions of where to relocate you know these animals from there yep but you know you know, obviously a tree snake you're going to want to put somewhere where there's trees freshwater snake, you probably want to put somewhere where there's water and frogs for it to eat. But um, other than that, distances, orientations and times, uh, these are all things that we really don't know what impact that translocation has on... um
12: We certainly don't, and we also don't know anything about um, hatchlings, so those have just come out of the egg. And that's a very difficult thing to do, just because there is no way of radio tracking or having transmitters yet. That is something I'm hoping to work on, and that we will looking at and looking
1: looking for smaller and smaller uh, radio transmitters
12: yeah Yeah, but then that's when it becomes do you do an attachment on the outside which would be glue but they shed their skin so that's not going to stay on and the question then becomes do we want to do a immediate survival study or a long-term survival so if it's long term we've got to come up with a more permanent way of being able to attach that onto the snake
1: Right, so an internal pit responder, you know, you still have to catch every animal and scan them after that, right? You
12: still do, and we're still talking about snakes that are only up to maximum of 30 grams. So when you're talking about pit tags and that, you've got to think about how much space does a baby snake have in its body, and also the size, and when we're looking at maybe doing um, an actual transmitter, what's going to happen if a bird or something eats that snake? How is that going to then affect the bird? Because unfortunately, I do believe that the success rate is not going to be high for juveniles. I do think there's a lot of predation, so therefore we do need to take that into account.
1: I, th- I think that's generally the assumption with a lot of small snakes <laughs> is that, you know, as soon as they're out of the egg, they're little moving noodles that pretty much every kookaburra uh, and every other, you know, lizard... Exactly. a lot of other
12: snakes as well are going to
1: have on the menu.
12: And I'm also a little bit concerned about cane toads. So a lot of areas where we're doing the relocations or putting snakes back into the wild when they've hatched in captivity, right. we try and aim for water bodies. And, of course, at water bodies... There's cane. Pretty much all of them have adult cane toads, but also there's when we've had the rains recently. There's a lot of baby cane toads. So yep. the question then becomes, what is the first meal that baby snakes are looking for? Potentially, if it is uh, frog or toads, is that killing them as well? So that's right. something we just don't know.
1: So so just putting juveniles into that um, juvenile toad-heavy environment might be worse than you know putting them somewhere where they're going to be finding more skinks and that
12: potentially. Kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, right. Wow, fascinating. And uh, when is that all uh, kicking off? Well, I
12: actually start the project next month. Ooh. So, yeah, exactly. Pretty excited. Yep. But we won't be actually doing any radio tracking until the warmer months. So yep. gives me enough time over winter to get through or to get all the trackers, get everything ready, um, access some snakes, yep. of
1: course. hopefully.
12: Yep. It's always good to do a project when you actually have snakes. Yeah, yeah samples <laughs> do
1: help, yeah. <laughs> so,
12: yeah, so definitely coming up the next spring, summer. We're hopefully going to be kicking that part off then.
1: Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, and uh, Heiner, um, I, I, are you going to be helping out with the project or are you just going to yeah. be herping whenever possible? I
12: <laughs> would
3: say both. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm actually, I'm a volunteer research assistant, so she might not be around every day. I, I don't know. So if something comes mm. in, I can also do the radio tracking or whatever, go out, help her as much as I can, try right. to support her and... Fantastic. So I can have
12: a day off. That's yeah. what's okay. great.
1: <laughs> so you're a volunteer RA on the um, on on this project in particular, or at UQ? But again, uh, you're a volunteer research assistant for this project specifically. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, oh, both of you get yeah. to go around and uh, work on the same thing. That's uh, that's mm-hmm. excellent. Mm.
12: Yeah, but I do actually sign up Hino for other. Um, Positions around UQ. <laughs> so there's something really cool. So he's done Shaman's Rock Wallaby and potentially he might be doing some small mammal pit trapping oh, that's coming cool. up.
1: So, very cool. Yeah. Well, speaking, speaking of all the pit responders, I think it was um, when they were tracking the bridal nail tail wallabies out at uh, Idalia. Yep. Where uh, one of them, they couldn't find it. and it, Well, it stopped moving. And then they found a black headed python with the uh, transponder inside. Mm-hmm. The inside. Yeah, so, you know that's kind of kind of one of the interesting things with the transponder studies. You 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 do find some pretty interesting predation effects some of the time as well. Mm.
12: Yeah, certainly yeah. do. And yeah. yeah, that's what we just don't know what's going to happen with our young pythons.
1: Yeah, very cool. Mm. Very cool.
12: So we can't become a, too attached to them, unfortunately. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> unfortunately, that is the nature of some <laughs> of these experiments, right? And, and uh, particularly when you're working with rehab and, and injuries and stuff, you do have to have some level of detachment because not all of them are are, are always going to be...
12: Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, that is what happens. But hey, we try. Yeah.
1: All right. Hey, guys, I think that's about all we have time for uh, on this short one. Uh, can't wait to hear more about the Brisbane Carpet Piper Project. If you guys are keen to come and talk more about it um, on the couch at some point in the future, we'd love to have you along.
12: Certainly will. Hopefully when we have the official launch, because we've just had a pre-launch here at this expo. Sure. But when we have the official launch, definitely hook us in for the couch session.
1: Excellent. Sounds good. More cake and cocktails on the <laughs> way, guys. All mm-hmm. right. Cheers. We'll be uh, talking to you guys very soon. Um Chili, Heiner, thank you so much for joining us on the, on the table and for another cake and cocktail. It's been fantastic. Yeah, cool. Thank you for the mojito. Yeah, no <laughs>
12: I've
1: got one question. Yeah, sure. this our cake? Yeah, that's your <laughs> cake. You take the cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you. You can take it with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Cheers. We'll be back with more wildlife cake and cocktails soon. Cheers, guys. Bye. <laughs> All right. We're here uh, again at uh, uh, the Brisbane Reptile Expo for 2018. Um, we're here at the uh, Brisbane International Showgrounds, and we're here with Mark. Um, Mate, what have you got for us here? This is amazing.
11: Well, he is amazing. This is uh, Dez. He's a a male, well, obviously, a wedge-tailed eagle, just getting on to 20 years of age.
1: Wow. So he's absolutely stunning. Um, There's quite a sizable collection of boxes there. Uh, You've got quite a few birds of prey here today.
11: Well, I bought several birds knowing that we are going to Uh, be getting a lot of attention. Yeah, I've got five birds here, and and they have been getting a lot of attention. Right, right, and uh, obviously it's been full here, everybody trying to get photos all the time, we're we're pushing in just to try to
1: get a chat with you. Um, What other animals do you have here?
11: So we've got a barn owl named Rocky, there's a barking owl named Nina, we've got a kestrel, my newest member to the team actually, only three weeks we've been together. Wow, was that the small thing that I thought might have been a brown falcon? Yeah, 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 a little kestrel. So that's Stevie, and there's also a black-breasted buzzard which i'm hoping we're going to be able to show a few people here their uh, unique natural behavior
1: is that the uh, new bird in your collection that you mentioned earlier or or
11: no the new one's little Stevie that we've only been together for three weeks
1: right of course of course and uh you know uh, obviously a bit hard around here to uh fly birds around but um you you also do do flying demos uh some of the time um with your with your birds is that correct
11: Yeah, we do. Well, for the most part, we're based at O'Reilly's Rainforest Retreat up in the Lamington National Park, but we're involved with events in many locations. So for the most part, when we go somewhere, the birds are actually flying outside.
1: Awesome. And, um, you know, for me, I'm just still excited to be this close to a wedge-tailed eagle. They're one of my favourite animals. You see them all the time out out west, but... uh Rarely ever up this close. There's usually a giant silhouette some couple of hundred metres away up in the sky. So being this close to them is uh, is absolutely awesome. Thank you for the opportunity, mate. It's, it's awesome to see you guys here with the, with your phenomenal birds.
11: Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It's been a top day. All right. And uh, where can people find you? You said uh, O'Reilly's, O'Reilly's Retreat? O'Reilly's Rainforest uh, Retreat, which is up in Lamington National Park. Right. Okay. And people can find you online on Facebook, Instagram, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff? Yep. Yep.
1: All right. Wonderful. All right, guys. Cheers. We're out of here. Um, and we're going to see what else we can find. Thanks, mate. And we're back. Welcome to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. It's our last segment for RepX. Guys, this has been so awesome. I'm uh, I'm tired, though. Um, <laughs> and I have no voice. Yeah.
5: We're,
1: we're all lacking day. a little bit in voice. You're going to have to get a little bit closer to the mic as well, Sorry, unfortunately. Um, hello, hello. 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 Um, so uh, we're very lucky to have Mr. Cameron Baker from the UQ Herb Society. Um, and you've been running around uh, doing some crocodile talks today. Is that correct?
7: Yeah, crocodile talk just a minute, probably
1: half an hour ago now. Yeah, we pretty much dragged you straight out of it as soon as we could. We pretty were trying, much. Trying to get you on the couch for a while. Um, yeah. And uh, Josh, uh, our good friend, Dr. Josh Linus is here. Um, you had a big night with the uh, virus talk last night as well. Um, yeah, um,
5: we did the virus <laughs> talk with you, then virus talk, and uh, which uh, Shane did, and um, and then we've had all day today, which has been a very good day. Yeah,
1: nice. And uh, you, you guys obviously had a whole lot of interest there at Herbert. I saw a lot of people coming through and
5: checking you out, so... Uh, yeah, i have pretty much out of everything I brought today, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go home.
1: Very good. So, look, a very successful day, um, I think, from most accounts. Uh, it's been an awesome, awesome, awesome expo. Is there, is there anything in particular that you were really blown away by? Or? Uh,
5: I just think it was organized quite well. Uh, I think the crowd got a, a pretty good uh, experience about what's going on in the reptile world these days, and uh, I'm very happy to have been here. Yeah, awesome.
1: Well, I mean, uh, there's, there, there was at least, what, it must have been 10,000 people here at some point, I, it
5: looks like. It pretty sure we'll find out. So yeah. it was a lot. It yeah. was impressive.
1: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, well, Good, good um, job, Scott. Yeah, fantastic job yeah, from uh, for, for, from Scott Owen and uh, everybody at RepX. They've just done a fantastic job here, I reckon, so awesome. Yeah. Um, Cameron, are you going to be doing many um, more uh, Crocodile Talks?
7: Um, none planned at the moment. None planned so at the moment? Never actually know so far this year. Third one for this year so far, so... Don't know what's going to happen next.
1: No worries. And uh, you're kind of looking into the uh, spatial movement and reproductive ecology. Is that kind of uh, kind of where you're going at the moment?
7: Yeah. So my research more looks into looking into like where, when, sort of why female crocodiles are migrating, moving, and nesting where they are nesting. So a couple interesting questions I want to try to answer over the next couple of years. But lots of interesting stuff.
1: Very cool. And um, you're pretty much uh, getting into the thick of PhD uh over this year or
7: yeah so just starting off my phd probably in just over a week from now so exciting battery gets really really busy really quick
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can imagine um and uh you're you're doing that at uq um who's who's your supervisor if you don't mind so
7: So my primary supervisor is professor craig franklin wonderful
1: wonderful, as well as um
7: dr ross dwyer as well
1: yeah fantastic fantastic crew Ah man awesome um Wow, ah, my, my, my brain's starting to shut down,
5: guys. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've reached our limit. It's probably time.
1: Uh, podcasting, uh, nearly over for the day. Guys, um, if you want to check out uh, Josh Linus, uh, you can check them out at herpfet.com.au. The website is now live. It is live. Excellent, excellent. And
7: uh, Herb Society, where can we find you guys?
1: Uh, UQ Herbsock on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, Instagram, all those kind of things?
7: Yep, and we're also available at uqherbsociety.com. If you want to... Have a read about what the society's like, and you can even join up online if you're interested.
1: Yeah, cool. I'll
5: be coming to
7: do a talk soon.
1: Ah, excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, guys, I think that's pretty much us for the day. I've, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Normally, I'd be more keen to talk uh, more reptile stuff where, with so many awesome reptile people around, but
5: I'm a little bit cooked, guys. Got it. Save a bit for next time.
1: Yeah, no worries. Guys, it's been an excellent, excellent day. RepX 2018 Brisbane Reptile Expo. It's pretty much over, but there will be more. I'm sure there's going to be more RepX action g- uh, coming on around Australia, and there's going to be another one here in Brisbane, hopefully next year. So keep an eye out for that. Um, until then, um, I've been your host, Yanni Tocola, Uh, And uh, this is Wildlife Cake and Cocktails episode 24, closing off. And we'll see you guys soon with plenty more Wildlife Cake and Cocktails action. Thanks again for joining us, guys, and we'll see you soon.